0: Dr. Casey Means is a Stanford-trained physician, chief medical officer, and co-founder of metabolic health company, Levels, and associate editor of the International Journal of Disease Reversal and Prevention. Her mission is to maximize human potential and reverse the epidemic of preventable chronic disease by empowering individuals with tech-enabled tools that can inform smart, personalized, and sustainable dietary and lifestyle choices. And today, we're gonna talk about all things metabolic health, blood sugar, and wearables. Casey, welcome.
1: Thank you, Jason. So glad to be here.
0: So great to have you. And I, I figure a good place to start for this conversation is a primer on all things metabolic health. I think we, we hear the term so often, We especially coming out of COVID. We've heard the statistics so often, so Often 88% of us are metabolically unhealthy, 12% of us are metabolically healthy. So let's take a step back. How do you define metabolic health?
1: Yeah, so the key question here, yeah. How do we define metabolic health? I think stepping back, the first way I like to think about metabolic health and metabolism in generally, generally is sort of what is metabolism? we often think about metabolism in in relation to like how fast is my metabolism and and sort of as a metric of whether we're um, able to lose weight or not. And really what it is, is how the body converts the food that we eat into energy that we can actually use and all the biochemical pathways involved in that. And we have 37 trillion cells in our body. 37 trillion human cells. We have many trillion more bacterial cells in our body, but 37 trillion cells. And for each of those cells to work properly, they need energy to run all of the cellular signaling pathways that that allow them to function and do their job. And when that process doesn't work properly, when the metabolism and the metabolic processes don't work properly, the cells are dysfunctional. And when cells are dysfunctional, the tissues that they're a part of are dysfunctional, the organs they make up are dysfunctional. And then we see disease and symptoms. So fundamentally, if a cell can't make energy, it's the root of really a lot of symptoms and diseases that we see today that are fundamentally rooted in metabolic dysfunction. And the interesting thing about our modern lives in this Western uh, world is that a lot of the things we're doing every single day are actually hijacking our metabolic processes and making us have trouble producing that energy to have, have allow ourselves to function. And those types of things that we're talking about in the Western world are things like our diet, our hugely industrialized diet filled with processed uh, sugars, processed carbohydrates, processed oils. It's the chronic low-grade stress that we're now under. We're not really facing these acute stressors that come and then go away, like being chased by a lion, but it's these constant low-grade stressors like email and honking and Cell phone dings and things like that. It's chronic sleep deprivation. It's lack of physical activity. It's lower access to micronutrients in our foods because our soils are depleted. It's microbiome dysbiosis. It's things like that that are actually acting on these metabolic pathways and gumming them up and creating problems. And what we're seeing now is the result of this, which is what you talked about. It's the 88% of American adults showing at least one biomarker of metabolic dysfunction. So that really shows you the impact of what some of these, you know, dietary and lifestyle factors are doing on the core physiology of our body that's required for our cells to function properly. And when we actually look at biomarkers like how do you define this in a doctor's office and when you look at that study about 88% being metabolically dysfunctional, what they're looking at is cholesterol levels. Cholesterol is involved in the metabolic processes because this is related to how we store, process and transport fats in the body, which is one of these energetic substrates. So cholesterol levels glucose levels in the body. Aside from fat, we have glucose as a source of energy. Fat and glucose, which is sugar, are the two primary substrates of energy in the body. So key to metabolism. And then waist circumference and BMI. So basically looking at at sort of markers of our physical composition. So that's really how we sort of define metabolism in some of these studies. But the core of what we're talking about is how the body makes, uh, uses and processes energy in the body
0: we've got these biomarkers and if we check each box it was i think it was cholesterol bmi glucose what what else am i what else am i missing
1: glucose cholesterol levels bmi weight circumference are often the ones we see yeah
0: and so if 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 we check all those boxes odds are we're in pretty good shape in terms of our metabolic health but if we don't probably not so much
1: That's right. In this particular study, they were looking at, oh, actually there was one more they looked at in this study, which was blood pressure. Um, Sorry to forget that one. Um, Yeah. So blood pressure, waist circumference, cholesterol, and blood glucose. And if you had every single one of these in the normal and healthy range, without the use of medications, you were considered metabolically healthy. And that was only 12% of Americans. And if even one of these were off, essentially, that was considered a bio- that you were metabolically showing dysfunction.
0: I think I know why we want to improve it. But from a medical perspective, why do we want to improve those biomarkers and how should we go about doing so?
1: Yeah, so the reason we want to improve these biomarkers is because we want our cellular biology to be functioning properly we want to be able to eat food process it appropriately use it to make energy and i and then store a little bit for extra for when we don't have access to energy through food the issue is that now in our modern world we have such an abundance of access to food that we really are overwhelming these systems the substrate that we put in the raw material is just so excessive there's evidence that Americans eat on average about 152 pounds of sugar per year. Probably about 200 years ago, this was like around a pound of sugar per year. So that's just like monumental increase in what the body has to process. And that creates lots of issues. It creates hormonal cascade of insulin being released and leads towards insulin resistance. And then it leads to the body to store so much of that sugar because it doesn't need to use it. We don't need that much energy. And so we end up storing it as fat. And this is leading to our overweight and obesity epidemic, which is affecting 74% of American adults. And so, so really the reason we want to approve it is because we want to feel our best. We want our bodies to work properly. What we're seeing now is that so many of the chronic illnesses we're facing in our country are fundamentally rooted in this core process. And it's really just the nature of the American medical system and this sort of reductionist view of the way we look at illness that we separate all that. We say, oh, stroke is one disease and heart disease is another disease and diabetes is another disease and obesity is another disease and infertility is another disease and Alzheimer's dementia is another. And it's just playing this whack-a-mole medicine. And when you actually look at a lot all those conditions I just mentioned and probably a dozen more. When you actually look at the cellular biology of what's happening, they're all linked by the same dysfunctional processes of metabolic dysfunction. For instance, Alzheimer's dementia, we're now calling type 3 diabetes, because it's so right. related to Um, how we regulate blood sugar and our metabolic processes. So we want to get these pathways on point so that we can actually ideally minimize our risk for these top killers that are leading to early morbidity and mortality in American adults. But it's not just avoidance of chronic disease. It's also just feeling good. You know, we, Mark Hyman calls it FLC syndrome, which is feel like crap syndrome, which I think a lot of Americans are dealing with right now, where we just kind of are low energy. We don't have the pep that we want. We're just not really feeling our best. And like we have the get up and go that we want to. And a lot of this is also real, I think, sort of rooted in in these metabolic processes not working properly. Things like brain fog, not feeling as sharp as you want to. And we can link that to really glycemic variability, which is just these ups and down glucose spikes that we have throughout the day from what we're eating and how we're living. And an example that might really resonate sort of with people is This idea of how you might feel after a really big meal like brunch, you have this post meal crash, you eat this meal. It's delicious, but you know, 30 minutes, an hour later, you're going to feel like crap. You're going to want to take a nap. You might another cup of coffee. You're not feeling great. This sort of this crash. What's interesting is that when you're tracking your blood sugar and watching your blood sugar, What you can often see is that that crash is often right around the time when your blood sugar crashes. So you go up after the meal as your body processes all those carbohydrates from the meal and then it comes crashing down and has a dip. And that's often when people feel fatigued, jittery, anxious, not great, certainly not wanting to get out and, you know, do a workout. And so being able to kind of understand what's happening and how our food choices are really affecting these subjective feelings throughout the day we can understand that actually metabolism is not just about avoiding these long-term chronic illnesses, which is a huge thing and something we certainly want to get on top of, but it's also just about feeling good in the moment. And so that's where some of this tracking and ability to monitor our our blood sugar levels, which is a sort of a proxy for understanding our metabolism and how it's working, can help us feel good really right now, but also over the long term.
0: Before we go to glucose, can you also walk through metabolic fitness and talk about how the difference between metabolic fitness and metabolic health and how we should be thinking about that?
1: Sure, absolutely. So, you know, I think generally speaking, we can think about metabolic health as meeting those criteria that we talked about for that the study of, of 88% of Americans being metabolically healthy. Like if you're blood pressure, HDL, triglycerides, waist circumference, and fasting blood sugar are all the right range without medication, then we're talking about you're likely in a good metabolically healthy space. But what we talk about when we're thinking about metabolic fitness is really the idea that this is not a one-way street where you sort of are on this trajectory towards metabolic dysfunction. That's sort of where you're at. Fitness implies that it's something we work at and can improve. And that's absolutely the way it is with metabolism. You really need to make the choices day in and day out to sort of optimize metabolism in order to kind of reap the benefits. So it's really about consistency and really dialing into things that keep our metabolism optimized. And the way that we can do that, I mean, one of the the ways that we can do that is by keeping our glucose more stable. That is sort of a rep in the fitness routine that we have, just like going to the gym and lifting Wheats is one rep that we would do towards getting the gains that we want with our muscles. And the reason sort of the biology behind why this can be helpful is because it's not, you know, the body is amazingly dynamic. And when you do eat something that does cause a large glucose spike, the reason this affects your metabolism long-term is because that glucose spike, this surge of broken down carbohydrates that gets into the bloodstream as blood sugar needs to be basically taken up by the cells and cleared from the bloodstream. And the re- the way the body does this is by releasing insulin from the pancreas, a hormone that helps your cells take up that blood sugar. And what happens when we have these big influxes of blood sugar from what we're eating, three meals a day, week after week, month after month, year after year, what happens is the body's releasing so much insulin that the cells become numb to it, which is a process called insulin resistance, which I'm sure many of your l- listeners know about. And the body is basically saying, we're going to block this insulin signal because there's too much sugar around. okay and, we're, and then what ends up happening is the body produces more insulin to help drive sugar into the cells to try and overcompensate. And over time, this is essentially the pathway towards metabolic dysfunction. And so what we mean by metabolic fitness is doing the reps to keep the blood sugar under control more frequently so that the body isn't having to produce so much insulin. And those cells can perk up to that signal of insulin and kind of move in the opposite direction down that spectrum of metabolic dysfunction. So it's really the choices we're making day in and day out that help us decide where we're going to be on that spectrum. And we always want to you know be moving in that direction of towards insulin sensitivity, more stability in our blood sugar levels, which ultimately results in that metabolic health that we talked about from that study. And so that's what we're talking about with metabolic fitness is really putting in the consistency in the reps to keep blood sugar stable.
0: With regards to keeping blood sugar stable, when does it become problematic? What, when is the occasional glucose spike okay, or is it never okay? Personally speaking, I'm a fairly healthy person. I kind of live by the 80, 20 rule, but come the weekend, if, if you've never had a donut plant donut in New York city, you've never lived. It's like the best donut in the world. And, I, and I'll enjoy that. The blackout donut is quite good. They also have sourdough donuts. They also have a couple of vegan donuts. Uh, and if I have it, I know my glucose is going to spike and I'll do the classic double peak, which I want you to talk about, but then it comes down. And then during the week, I'm, you know, glucose really doesn't do much. So my question is, is the goal? No. Variation, or is it, or what's what's okay if you're not pre-diabetic?
1: Yeah. So the goal is to be metabolically healthy, and we know that metabolic health is going to, in part, be related to our glycemic variability, which is how much the magnitude of our ups and down swings are at glucose. So it's not a one-to-one relationship between a glucose spike and metabolic dysfunction. The body is. This very complex, dynamic entity that has the ability to handle glucose going into the bloodstream. And actually, we've evolved to do that well, because traditionally, historically, we didn't have so much abundance for, uh, to food. And we had to feast when we had access to the berries or whatever it was to store Fat for later, for when we did not have energy. So the body knows exactly how to handle a glucose spike. And really, this is more about longer term trends and and sort of adaptations the body is making. So it should never be considered like a one time thing is going to damage the body because the body is extremely resilient. This is more talking about trends over time. And in the Western world, the average person is having glucose spikes all the time. The vast majority of our calories in the United States right now come from ultra processed grains and refined sugars. So that's totally not normal. And it's a totally modern phenomenon that our bodies don't know how to deal with. So one donut once a week is very different than that's not well, I, 70% of you know, I, I
0: definitely do. When I, when I do it, I definitely do more than one. I, sure. I will, you know, i um, you know, I, I love those donuts, but.
1: <laughs> well, so <laughs> but the key thing being that our body, you know, knows how to handle this. And it's sure. a greater context that we're thinking about. The other thing that is, I think, interesting with metabolism is that it's not just about food. There's a lot of things that affect our metabolism. Like I mentioned in the beginning, which was that it also has to do with stress. It has to do with our physical activity. It has to do with how much sleep we're getting, our microbiome, our micronutrient status, our exposure to environmental toxins. There's a lot of in the cellular sort of milieu in the body that can impact our met- metabolic processes, our mitochondria, the part of the part of the cell that um that runs our metabolism. And so, let's say you didn't want to eat that donut. There's many options for people to actually minimize their glycemic variability from that donut. For instance, you could make sure that you're getting a good night's sleep before you eat your donut, which means you'll probably be more insulin sensitive that day. You could take a 20-minute walk after eating the donut, which we know has a really strong impact on Reducing post meal spikes, you could potentially preload that donut with some grilled chicken or tofu or another protein source, which we also know diminishes the post meal glucose spike. So it's not just about what you're eating, but also kind of the context with which you're eating it. And I think those are some really helpful things to remember when people do want to indulge in things that they know spike their glucose, is that there's a lot of options for actually minimizing the glycemic variability you're going to see. So that's one thing. But the second thing is to remember, like, With the body one times exposures like that are not going to cause lasting damage it's the trends it's the adaptations over time that cause problem problems and like with the conversation around insulin resistance you can see how doing this over and over again spiking that insulin over and over again that creates cellular adaptations that cause the cell to become insulin resistant that's not going to happen one day i will say There are things that can affect the body really strongly, even with short exposures. And one of those is sleep deprivation. There was a really interesting study from several years ago that took a bunch of healthy young men and basically deprived them of sleep. I believe they got around four hours of sleep for six days in a row. So there are probably some college students out there who are living that life. Um, But they took them from totally healthy metabolisms, totally insulin sensitive to essentially pre-diabetic with just changing their sleep over the course of those six days. But when they allowed them to have as much sleep as they wanted for the next week, their bodies bounced back. So it's really a dynamic process, but we don't wanna be cutting sleep and getting the blood glucose spikes day after day, week after week, year after year, decade after decade, because that will lead towards chronic disease. But no one should ever freak out about a single glucose spike bottom line. <laughs>
0: agreed. Agreed. And, and so one of the most interesting things I found Colleen and I both tried levels. And when and I, I did all sorts of crazy experiments, I was like, all right, let's see how high this thing can go, but let's see what my baseline is. And sleep is very important to us. Colleen has struggled with sleep for most of her adult life. She's got it under control was the inspiration behind our sleep support supplement. And we thought it was really interesting around dinner time in terms of what we ate, how much we ate, how late we ate, and then also alcohol and tracking it, not just with levels, but tracking it, I wear an aura and a whoop. And calling words Nora, just like tracking also how that affected heart rate variability, like everything, and essentially our sleep suffered. So, I, where I'm going with this is, th- I think the connection with sleep is also really interesting. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about how we should be thinking about our meals in the evening to set ourselves up for a good night's sleep? And when dessert does happen, but when alcohol does happen, what are some of those, what, what are some of those opportunities for us to kind of maybe add something that could help mitigate that spike, which is gonna cause us to maybe suffer on, on our sleep.
1: Yeah. So the relationship between metabolism and sleep and glucose and sleep is such an interesting one, as you guys discovered using this um, do, and doing glucose tracking. And I'd say some of the take-home points around sleep and glucose, the first is that probably the earlier we eat dinner and the greater distance we have between our last meal and when we sleep, the better for sleep. That's kind of a key take-home point. We, we know that we actually become a little bit more insulin resistant at night. And so and this in part is due to melatonin secretion, which helped us fall asleep, which seems to make us slightly insulin resistant. So if you eat the exact same carb-rich meal first thing in the morning versus right before bed, people tend to show a higher glucose response to that exact same meal later in the evening than they would in the morning. So that can impact some people's decision making by having them front front load their carbohydrates or higher carb meals earlier in the day which also is when you might be a little bit more active as well. So that's one thing. So I tend to kind of move during the day towards a little bit, you know, more keto style towards the end of the day, because I don't want to essentially get this like worse bang for my buck later at night by eating a meal that I could have had a lower glucose response to earlier in the day. We also know that ups and downs in glucose throughout the night can be associated with arousals, like essentially waking up. And so having sort of a crash at night can sometimes cause the body to to wake up in alarm. And so we don't really want to have that like midnight glucose spike because we know we're going to come down and then it's going to kind of bounce around throughout the night. And so keeping it more stable overnight tends to be better for sleep. Now then the question comes to, well, what about life? And like life happens and like there's potentially alcohol and dessert and whatnot. I'd say you just have to really like lean on your you know toolbox of strategies for how to keep glucose more stable, even if we're having a high carbohydrate load. And it's, it's some of the things I mentioned before. So making sure that we're not eating our carbohydrates alone, like naked carbohydrates or just having like, so like a naked carbohydrate dessert, I would consider like sorbet. There's very little fat fiber or protein, but there's tons of sugar. If we can balance the, the dessert or the meal a little bit more so that there is a bit more fat, protein, and fiber involved, it's possible we can sort of blunt that glycemic excursion. So again, it might be making sure that your meal is a bit lower carb, high in fat, fiber, and protein before you're putting the big carb load in for dessert. It also could be as simple as just taking a walk after the meal before bed. And a lot of cultures do this. A lot of cultures will take a post-meal walk. And so just kind of getting out and doing 30 minutes of a walk, or if it's nighttime and you're out, like have a little dance party at the end of the night. And that's definitely something I've incorporated into my life to try and essentially clear some of the glucose before I just lay down and it's sedentary and know that it's going to kind of be bouncing around in my bloodstream throughout the night. Because I know I'm already a little bit insulin insulin resistant at night. So clear it give it to the muscles to actually use. The muscles are our best glucose sink. They take it up and they take it out of the bloodstream and they actually use it. So use the muscles a little bit and then go go to sleep. And then of course, there's just like so many dessert alternatives that I think people who get into glucose monitoring and people in the keto world certainly discover that there's a lot of dessert sort of alternatives that don't spike glucose. So I have Gotten into making some things that probably sound a little gross, but they're actually delicious, but like black bean brownies sweetened with a little, just a couple dates. I make a chickpea cookie dough with dates in it and some really dark chocolate chips in there. I serve at dinner parties, I'll sometimes serve like a really fancy chia pudding. Chia has tons of fiber and protein and fat, very little carbohydrates, but I'll do some berries in a coconut, in a coconut cocoa chia pudding. And these are just all things I know that are delicious but do not spike my blood sugar. So kind of finding some of those interesting alternatives. And now in our family, actually, our birth, our favorite birthday cake is almond and cashew flour cake with a sort of like coconut cream frosting. And so it's a grain-free, nut-based flour, sweetened with, again, a couple dates. Some people will choose to sweeten with something like allulose or monk fruit, which are more of the natural, non neutral sweeteners, which I tend to avoid. But yeah, so kind of just getting creative and figure out some alternatives that are delicious. But those are some of the ways I'd probably approach your question.
0: Well, I I love this idea of avoid the naked dessert where it's just pure sugar and carbs, no fat, no protein. What I found in this process when I was doing all of my experiments, and this was a huge win for me, chocolate and peanut butter. The magic combination of chocolate and peanut butter I basically had like no, no response, neither did Colleen. I was like, this is amazing. Like chocolate and peanut butter were making the case for chocolate and peanut butter. So I could enjoy my, my peanut butter, quinoa cups from our friend, Michael Bronner at unreal. You know, it's like chocolate and peanut butter. I could do this all day. This is huge. No glucose response for me. So. With regards to to food, I'm curious, cuz look, what's great about personalization is it's personalized and and we're all unique individuals and and we all have unique responses. I'm curious. You have access to all this data. What are some foods? I'm sure like if, if someone just has a quote unquote naked donut, I don't care what's going on. I'm sure they're gonna get a, a glucose spike. I think safe to say that. Correct.
1: It depends on the person and the donut. I would say, <laughs> but yes, I would assume that with that, because it's mostly, it's carb forward. Sure. I would say that's probably likely. Although I have um, discovered what are called glow nuts, which are AMF, oh, yeah. almond flour donut. And that's my new go-to. But uh, but yeah, donuts are probably so, a spike.
0: So, so donuts, so we'll just say like your your Dunkin' Donuts probably going to spike everyone. So right. I'm curious, are there su- certain foods where you found wildly different responses where people over here have no response where people over here have a significant response i'm curious like what are some of those the foods where you, you see that
1: yeah well i'd say the first thing i would say is that we have found a lot of foods in our data set that are surprising to us that are some of the worst glucose spikers in the sense that they like are the top 40 worst scoring foods, but they actually are typically thought of as like kind of healthy foods. So one of the biggest spikers in our data set is grapes. Who knew? Grapes. A lot of fruits, minimal spikers, but grapes seem to be gigantic. And I think this probably has to do with the fact that grapes have very little fiber and grapes are often eaten totally on their own. So you don't often like chop up grapes and put it in yogurt or like, you just usually pop them in. And, and so I think that pairing, that lack of pairing makes it more problematic. So probably a good thing to eat like on a charcuterie board where there's like nuts and cheese and other things. That would probably be like a safer way to eat them. We also saw one of our worst scoring foods in the whole levels data set is oatmeal, which a lot of people think is a health food. And a lot of doctors say eat this for breakfast and the box. That's heart healthy. And we found really the opposite of that. Which is that it was one of our top 40 worst spiking foods. And we actually did an experiment at the company where several people ate just two packets of Quaker instant oatmeal. And me personally, like I had a 70 point glucose rise, which is very large. I I usually try to have less than a 30 point glucose rise after a meal. So 70 will create like a big spike and crash. And I think this one is really an interesting one because. It really shows how personal tracking and understanding your personal data with a glucose monitor is could really potentially change the food industry in terms of how we market foods and what we could put on packages. Because that box says good source of whole grains, heart healthy. But there is no question that for my body with a 70 point glucose rise, that is not heart healthy for me. It's not. Well, you um, got
0: to add some peanut butter to it.
1: Yeah, peanut butter exactly. and chocolate. Yeah. Well, I have some raw cocoa powder and some almond butter and some chia seeds and some walnuts could definitely change that response. And we also see that the less processed the oats, the better people do. So steel cut oats or even groats, which are like really chewy and those are going to often do better for people. But just regular all comer oatmeal tends to be something that spikes a lot of people. Again, not for everyone. But when we're looking at like the entire data set, I've definitely met people who are like, oh no, I had instant notes and I didn't do anything. So, we also, one that's interesting and don't have any hard data on this, but I've, it's more anecdotal is that beans tend to affect different people very differently. So, I've been plant based for a few years and I can eat a can of beans, like which is about four servings, and have no glucose response. And often I'll be putting a little bit of tahini or something like that on it. So, there is fat but there are other people who eat beans and spike through the roof. They are like a no-no on a keto diet, but they're actually fine for me on a keto diet because I don't spike my glucose and they don't kick me out of ketosis. Something interesting that I've heard from a few people is that, and it, so, so stepping back, I, I personally think the reason for this is microbiome related. And in a, in a study that was done about five years ago, a really fascinating study in the journal Cell, it was called personalized Nutrition by Prediction of Glycemic Responses. And what they did is they took 800 people without diabetes, otherwise healthy, no diagnosed metabolic issue. And they put continuous glucose monitors on them. And then they gave them standardized meals that were all the same in terms of the composition. And you would think that they would all respond exactly the same because all the meals had the same number of carbohydrates in them. But what they actually found was that people responded all across the board from like no spike to huge spikes. And this and then they looked at essentially all the factors in the people's bodies that that seem to lead to that to predict what their response would be. And the biggest one they found was microbiome composition seemed to dictate how people responded, which is not surprising. The microbiome are our first pass on food. They're the ones who are gonna break down some of those early carbohydrates before it actually goes into the body. So but I tend to think that people who are used to eating lots of plant fiber probably have microbiomes that tend to process it a little bit more favorably and was actually my co-founder david got very into fiber recently and started eating huge amounts of chia every morning before anything like just to get his fiber in and over the course of the month after eating all this fiber day after day found that he no longer responded as much to beans and so I think, it, I mean, lots more research that needs to, to happen there, but that's one that we tend to see very variable responses that I think is pretty, pretty interesting. So those are some of the ones that that we see. We also, we see big spikes with, in our top 10, like in our, we published an article about top 10 most surprising foods um, that spike people. Sushi was a big spiker in our data set, acai bowls, and also Really, anything that had the word pho or ramen in it, pho or ramen. That one's I guess, not super surprising. But often people think soups are kind of lighter and whatnot. So I think with with those, you could really go into each of them and break down why this is happening. But really, the pairing and and bringing in more less of the naked carbohydrate and more of the the fat, protein, and fiber can off can be helpful for really mitigating some of this stuff. For sushi, I've actually switched completely to cauliflower rice sushi, which I make at home and it's so easy. It's super delicious. Zero spike versus like an 80-point spike if I eat regular sushi. Of course, I will still have sushi every once in a while at a great restaurant. But for the day-to-day weekly meals at home, that's a swap that can basically cause the spike to be gone. So little swaps you can do for all of these. But we we read a lot about uh, this on our blog because I think having just some Ideas for how to to mitigate some of these big spikers can be really helpful.
0: Well, what's so interesting, just to build off what you were saying with beans, and then your co-founder on fiber. So, if you're having look, like, beans are great. Beans are less. I'm not talking to Dr. Gundry and having like going down the lectin rabbit hole, but like, <laughs> but beans are, are healthy. They're a great source of iron. Like, they're great. If you have a significant response to beans, one you could be eating too much. That's another thing. Like I found like if the meal is just heavy, you're going to response. And then to build off what you said earlier, I think this is interesting. It may not be your, this, this touches on the microbiome. Potentially the answer isn't, Hey, I need to avoid beans because it's spiking my glucose. The answer may be, maybe I need to eat more beans because this is good for me. And I need to get my microbiome in a healthier place. Potentially.
1: Yeah, I think there's something I think there's something to that. And I think what it really just draws attention to is that these are not static things where we right. are just to respond the exact same every day of our life throughout the course of our lives to the, to the food. I do think it's very dynamic. And what's interesting is that you can even see within your own body yourself responding differently to the same meal on two different dates, like between Monday and Tuesday, you might have a totally different response to the same meal. And this really does come down to some of these other contextual lifestyle factors. If I get poor sleep, I'm going to spike more to the same food the next day. And so that's really motivating for me because like you, I also wear the whoop and I track all this stuff. And when you can see that I got six hours of sleep and now I'm baseline 10 points higher than I was on the day when I got eight hours of sleep, it is hyper-motivating to me to prioritize my sleep. Like I'm really seeing that connection. And we actually just did a study with WHOOP. We'll be putting out the, the results shortly, but we looked at correlations between metabolic score, um, which is a, a levels marker, and the WHOOP recovery score. And there does seem to be a relationship between recovery score and metabolic score. So, so really dialing in some of that stuff and realizing that we are dynamic, not only person to person but also day to day in our own lives. So thinking about that bigger picture and context, I think is really empowering because it allows us to have multiple levers to pull when it comes to keeping our glucose or stable in our metabolic health on point. It's not just one thing you have to commit to to be that healthiest version of yourself. There are many different areas that we could tap into and it's not, you know, you don't have to have all of them perfect, but you can make sure that you're at least getting a few of these things dialed in each day.
0: What about coffee? My favorite
1: coffee. Yeah. Coffee is a really interesting one. So there's sort of two parts to this. One is that caffeine does appear to cause a glucose rise acutely. And this is thought to be in part because caffeine creates like a cortisol catecholamine response, which is sort of a stress response in the body. And any stressor in the body is actually going to tell the liver to break down some of its stored glucose, we have a little bit of stored glucose in the liver, sort of our short-term quick energy source. And stress is going to cause your liver to break down some of that glucose. So you have this sort of like rapid influx of glucose in the body to, to feed your muscles and essentially escape whatever threat is causing the stress. So you can imagine like if you're being chased by a lion, you have a stress response, your liver would break down some glucose to feed the muscles, you can run away. So that is a little bit what's happening when caffeine enters the body. And so glucose can go up after a cup of caffeinated coffee. But in the long run, it appears that people who drink a, a moderate amount of coffee tend to actually have better, better metabolic health over the long term. And I think this is in part because of all the antioxidant uh, components that we find in food, the polyphenols and whatnot which tend to be protective of our mitochondria, our energy producing factors in the cell, factors in the cell, and actually pr- protect them from some of that oxidative stress that is really at the root cause of metabolic dysfunction. So short term, may see a little bit of a glucose bump. Long term, a small to moderate amount of coffee sort of over the lifetime does not seem to be detrimental to metabolic health.
0: Yeah, for, for me, it was interesting. I love coffee. I start with a Two double espressos in the morning, and then I get a black coffee on the way to work, and then I'll do an espresso in the afternoon. I'm also six foot seven, two hundred plus pounds. I'm not an average <laughs> size human, I, and it's black. I don't put anything in it. My response was negligible, nothing. Wow,
1: very yeah. interesting.
0: And then I was like, I'm done with the test. I'm done with levels. Uh, I was like, that's it. That's all I need. That's all. I'm so happy.
1: Yeah. Keep drinking the coffee. Keep drinking it.
0: Chocolate, chocolate, peanut butter, and coffee. I'm good. We're set. Uh, Love we're level. We're, we're all good. We're all good. So I, I am curious, you know, touching on beverages, alcohol, what role does alcohol play? I did some fun experiments on frozen margaritas last summer, which I think I we all know what the result of that would be. Nonetheless, I still did very thorough experimenting. What role does alcohol play?
1: So Alcohol is a really fascinating, um, has a really fascinating effect on glucose levels. And it's, it's worth people knowing about because it's pretty counterintuitive. So straight alcohol, a spirit, you know, like a hard alcohol or wine or even beer, no mixers, no sweet additions will often cause glucose to actually decrease on the glucose monitor. And for people who are drinking wine or hard alcohol like a martini with a meal they'll often see that their response to the meal is lower than it would have been what they expected or what it would have been without alcohol and the reason for this is because of alcohol's effect on the liver and it's not necessarily this is not a this is not a hack to use to keep glucose levels lower because it's a very different sort of physiologic response but what's happening is that the body basically has like three ways of putting glucose into the bloodstream and the body needs there to be a certain amount of glucose in the bloodstream at all times so that to keep us safe, essentially, you don't want it to be too high. You don't want it to be too low. So the body has all these redundant mechanisms towards keeping it in a fairly tight range. One of those is through circulating glucose, which is like what we've eaten that's entering into the bloodstream by the digestive tract. Then we've got stored glucose in the liver called glycogen, which is sort of this short term quick access bank of glucose that can be broken down when needed. But then the liver can also make new glucose, which is called gluconeogenesis, which is made from other uh, substrates in the body like lactate. uh, And it can actually just produce new glucose. There's all these different ways. And alcohol blocks that third pathway. It blocks gluconeogenesis. And so one of these three faucets of getting glucose into the bloodstream is essentially blocked by alcohol. So you're going to see that what it looks like in the bloodstream is going to be lower. And so... An interesting thing about alcohol is that the research, epidemiologic research of large populations shows that people who drink about one drink on average per day tend to have the best metabolic health. So people who drink zero actually seem to have higher risk of type 2 diabetes. People who drink about one drink have the lower risk, and then it goes up essentially exponentially after that. So it's called a J-shaped curve. It's highest risk at zero then dips and then goes higher as you go high, as you go above one to two, depending on gender. And so it's really quite interesting, not not a reason to take up drinking one drink a day, day. but it's pretty interesting in the literature, so.
0: And obviously, you know, when I did my test, it was a frozen margarita, so obviously lots of sugar, agave, I got a spike. But but if I'm understanding correctly, if you're gonna have a glass of wine, a beer, uh, a martini, uh, a shot of tequila for dinner you're probably good
1: yeah those i mean certainly those would be better options than like a fancy mixed drink with a bunch of sweeteners simple yeah. syrup and whatnot or like a bunch of fruit juice and so yeah i mean sticking with making sure it's being consumed with food and then really avoiding those Extra sweeteners is the way to go. And for people who are on a ketogenic diet, so they're already ultra low carb and their glycogen stores in the liver are already low and they're probably on the lower end of circulating glucose. This is actually, these are people who need to definitely be more cognizant of when they're drinking and making sure they're drinking with food and ideally with a little bit more carbohydrates upward. Because if you think about people who are in that state, already low glycogen, low carbohydrates coming in through digestive they're relying more on gluconeogenesis to get the glucose in their bloodstream. So blocking that pathway can actually be dangerous. So people who have been fasting for a long time or have been on a ketogenic diet for a long time need to be extra careful with alcohol consumption because you're blocking essentially a core redundant pathway to get glucose into the bloodstream. So just something to to be cognizant of. So I would like never drink alcohol When I'm on a 36-hour fast or something like that, that (laughs) would
0: common sense. (laughs) I love coming off fast and going straight to a martini said, okay. said, no, said nobody. So, or I'm sure someone said that, but not good, obviously. So look, I know there's a, a huge element of personalization, but I'm curious with all the, the data you have, wh- what are the staples of, of a good breakfast, of a good lunch, of a good dinner dessert? We've talked about Audazium. you got some great recipes and I'm just all about chocolate and peanut butter, but like, what are the staples of a good breakfast, lunch and dinner, if you could walk us through?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think breakfast is the key one that I would focus on optimizing if you're new to this whole like glucose metabolism eating sort of space. And the biggest shift I would say is switching from a sweet breakfast to a savory breakfast. That is like one of the best life hacks I think that you can do. So sweet breakfast, I'd include things like pastries, donuts on a weekday, uh, pancakes, cereal, things that are essentially based on refined grades. Savory, I'm thinking about things like a free-range egg scramble with avocado and some sautéed greens. Like that would be a really good breakfast. Maybe some smoked salmon with eggs and some greens. I love to do a tofu scramble with some nutritional yeast and a bunch of veggies, maybe even some beans. It's really about leaning into that sort of like savory, lower carbohydrate, less sweet. And then if you are someone who's loved the oatmeal or the pancakes or whatever, and you do want something sweet, I think the best option is chia pudding with some berries and some almond butter and some walnuts. So chia pudding as an alternative to cereal or oatmeal is an awesome life hack. Chia is like such an amazing superfood. It's got so much fiber and protein and just like two tablespoons. You basically just like mix it with some milk or unsweet- or unsweetened non-dairy milk, put it in the fridge overnight, maybe put some cocoa. If you want it a little sweeter, you could add some allulose or monk fruit, which are not going to affect blood sugar, and then add some berries, like some blackberries, uh, raspberries, blueberries, and then some nice little toppings, almond butter or whatever, that tends to really not spike people, but still gives you that sort of like bowl of delicious sort of sweet goodness. So um, when I'm thinking about really any meal, I'm thinking about like what components I want to get into my body for optimal cellular health. And for me, that is that With almost every meal I want, I'm focusing mostly on micronutrients. I want to get as many micronutrients as possible. So that means plants. It means colorful foods that come from the earth. That's really one of my top priorities. I'm also thinking about omega-3s in every meal. I want to get those omega-3 fats that are going to build healthy cell membranes and be anti-inflammatory. I want fiber to feed my microbiome, which I know is going to have just impacts, impact all aspects of my biology. I want some healthy sources of protein. I want some whole food fats. So things like unrefined fat sources, like a fish or tahini or nuts or nut butters or whatnot. Those are kind of, so I think more in modular sort of ways when I'm thinking about building a meal and less about like the exact dish. And I think when you think that way, it frees you up to like, you don't necessarily have to eat a breakfast food. You can eat something that includes components that you like that that gives you like those basic building blocks that are going to help with your core core biology, and so, so those are some of the ideas for breakfast. Another thing I just want to plug: if you are someone who's like I love pancakes, I'm not going to you know get away from pancakes or pastries. There's so many great non grain alternatives these days. There's amazing keto pancakes on the market that are made with tiger nut flour, coconut flour, um, almond flour, and they taste delicious. You can you know put blueberries in them, whatnot, and use. Instead of using syrup, use almond butter or just something a little bit different. So so those are kind of some breakfast ideas and kind of just getting in the mindset of like, what if breakfast actually looks more like dinner? Like if you're someone who just like moving away from the box of what breakfast have to look like, all of those things are that I just mentioned are traditional sort of like breakfast type ideas. But also why not just have like salmon and a salad for breakfast? Like it, it, it can really be anything you want. But the best thing you want to avoid is a big glucose spike because that'll just your day off correlate.
0: Another one, which I'll throw in, it used to be the case that yogurt would be terrible. There'd be so much sugar, but that's also another alternative where there are yogurts out there that have a decent amount of protein. They've got great healthy fat, they're grass-fed and there's low sugar. Like, so that's actually another alternative I was going to throw out as well.
1: Totally. I I mean, I I love like forager, organic cashew yogurt, throw a bunch of chia seeds, walnuts, almond butter, some berries on there. Like that's a great low, like low spiking breakfast. So I love that idea. Yeah.
0: And then what about for lunch?
1: Yeah. So for lunch, I think this is where I think swaps can be really helpful. Let's think about like a typical lunch, sandwich, a wrap, maybe sushi, just a lot of things that are going to have big glucose spiking bombs in there, like bread and tortillas, maybe tacos. Like really, there are so many ways. To, and, and often the meals will have like a lot of good stuff in them, like a sandwich might have vegetables and hummus and some nice, you know, protein in there. But then it's like the bread or the wrap or whatever's around it that essentially like drives the glucose spike. So I'm always looking at meals as like okay what are the good components and then what can we swap out to make the collateral damage of this meal like much much lower get the good stuff take out the bad stuff even with a lot of salads that people might be having for lunch they might have like 15 really great things in them but then there's croutons and a big piece of bread on the side or dried cranberries that are covered in sugar or raisins or a dressing with like a bunch of refined seed oils in it, which are going to not be great for our metabolic processes. So just like really trying to identify what are the things that are the culprits in terms of the glucose spike, and then just either take them out or swap them. So that's kind of the framework I would approach lunch with. So if it's a wrap, think about wrap alternatives. There are now uh, Grain free tortillas like Siete brand. They actually have now burrito sized cashew or almond flour tortillas. Those actually still have cassava flour in them, which are, is a root vegetable, which does like some people, but they're certainly going to eat better than a flour or a whole wheat tortilla. You can also use collard greets. I make a lot of my wraps now in collard greets and they're so delicious. You can use butter lettuce for taco. You can use shaved jicama for taco shells, uh, whole food, uh, Trader Joe's actually sells now jicama tortillas that are just straight shaved jicama that you can use as a tortilla shell. I've made nori wrap burritos, which are made of like large seaweed sheets that you could just buy at Whole Foods and use them in place of a tortilla. So there's lots of ways to get the same thing that you love, but without the glucose spike. And the same is true of bread. Use some iceberg lettuce as your burger bun. Use nori as a burger bun, there's just, there's great, great, and and of course, grain-free breads. And you want to use nut flour breads that are going to essentially have very little carbohydrates, like an almond flour bread or something like that. You want to be weary of a lot of the things out there that say grain-free, because a lot of them are just going to replace that with other carbohydrates, like rice or oat flour, but the nut-based ones uh, tend to be quite low carb.
0: Can we stay on bread for a moment? Because if you're going to, so You've got the keto breads, you've got the grain free. I just want to stay on bread. So sourdough, for example, a lot of people would say that, Hey, if you're going to have bread, sourdough is probably the best. And then in terms of blood sugar, are there, if you're going to have quote unquote regular bread, is there an option that is better? Is it rye? Is it sourdough? Like if you're going to get like a great, let's just say. It's not like wonder bread. It's a great bread from your local farmer's market. It's organic. There's not a lot of processed crap in it. Is it rye? Is it sourdough? Is it something else that is the better option?
1: I don't have a good answer to that question, to be honest. I do. I haven't looked into. We haven't looked into this deeply in our in our data set. Although we have seen a lot of people say that they don't spike as high on sourdough, so that's definitely one thing to keep in mind. But in terms of rye or pumpernickel or sourdough, I don't have a. I don't have a definite answer for that. One thing that we know is super clear is that the less refined the flour is, the better. So, like white flour is just, you know, ultra-refined, you've taken away all the fiber um, and a lot of the nutrients, and that's usually gonna cause the biggest glucose spike, but more of like the whole grain. So basically the breads that have a bit more like, to them when you bite into them, a little bit chewier, um, a little bit rougher, they're probably gonna tend to be lower in terms of your glycemic response, but ultimately it's really about testing it. So, yeah.
0: Got it. So. How do you think about, I I wear all these trackers, you wear a lot of trackers, (laughs) how do you think about the balance between data and actionable insights and TMI and maybe taking the, the, the joy out of life? out of the meals with loved ones, out of celebrations, just in general, I've struggled with this from time to time. Sometimes information is empowerment, but sometimes it's just, you know, too much and yeah. got to park it. I had a great psychiatrist on here, Judd Brewer, who specializes in addiction. And he, this great line, I'll never forget. He's like, if you're wearing your Fitbit and doing laps around your house at night to make sure you get enough steps, you've got a problem.
1: that's interesting i mean i have to say i i think i disagree with that um
0: walking in circles
1: (laughs) i i i've done that and i i love it you know when i was i remember one of my favorite memories of my trip to japan was my i went with a girl who's done like 30 marathons and she's been a great running inspiration for me and like we walked around the plane probably like 50 times. And I think we did get to 10,000 steps on the airplane and we made a bunch of friends doing it. You know, a bunch of people joined in and the flight attendants loved it. And it was fun and it was about community and it was about being healthy together and not sitting for 15 hours. Well, that's good
0: because you can get a pulmonary embolism on a flight. And there are lots of other good reasons why you need to walk around on a long flight. But
1: (laughs) right, right. But I, I totally understand the concept of like, we don't want to take the joy out of life. But from what I've seen as a physician, and just person living in this world, the the number one thing that takes joy out of life is chronic illness and dying prematurely from chronic disease. And I don't think I'm not saying trackers are the answer to that, but anything we can do to take, to be empowered and take control of our health will ultimately, in my opinion, breed more joy over the long term, both mental and physical. The chronic diseases we're facing in our country today are mostly preventable. And being born in the United States, there is a more like and just following the normal culture, doing what's normal in our country. You are more likely than not going to develop a chronic disease, be on multiple medications and die earlier than you needed to. And um, not in any way trying to fear monger, but like that's that's the reality of American life. And I've seen it firsthand in the hospitals day to day out. And. The reason I'm doing what I'm doing at levels is because I believe that people need to understand their bodies better. If we're going to be able to face the monumental challenges we're facing living in the modern Western world with what is put in front of us as normal, which is eating most of our calories from industrialized processed foods, cutting short on sleep, just being addicted to performance and stress and who can work the longest and the hardest and this and that and all these and just and sitting all day. That's just normal life. If you go to school as a child in America, you're going to be sitting all day and being fed food that is going to hurt you. Like school lunches in the average school are abysmal. And so it's really about empowerment, in my opinion, giving people information so they can make better choices. And any tool is going to have potentially positive things. And it's going to have potentially any tool can cause uh, benefit and can cause harm. And so what we're doing at levels is trying to really strike that balance towards benefit, making it not something that people feel addicted to or shamed by, or like it's sort of the thing on their shoulder, telling them that they're making bad decisions, but really just hope help helping to empower people to understand what's going on, not be scared of the data, but learn how to to potentially make small changes that will ultimately improve their life. And so, so that's really sort of The core of why I'm doing what I'm doing is to empower people with their own information so they can make better choices uh, and ultimately live uh, healthier, happier lives. But I think in terms of the bigger picture of wearables, the wearables that I think are most effective are the ones that, that really give you actionable information. As you said, actionable is key. Like data without interpretation or an understanding of how to do better, I think can be where it's really frustrating. And I think weight on a scale is an example of that. You see it, it may be a pound higher than yesterday. Like, what do you do with that information? There's a million options. You don't know what to do. And it can be really disempowering and frustrating. Whereas like one of the things I love about WHOOP is that in the monthly reports, because I've logged in my journal on WHOOP every morning, it actually tells me like whether my magnesium that I took improved or harmed my recovery score. And that was actually one of the big surprises for me. I was taking my magnesium right before bed. And it told me that that was actually associated with a lower recovery score for me when I took the magnesium. Hard to know if that's totally right. But everyone thinks magnesium before better is better for sleep. In my case, over the course of many months, it seemed to be associated with not positive recovery score. So I stopped doing it. And that was like an actionable change that I could make. There are also ones that were very obvious. Like when I drink alcohol, my recovery score completely plummets. So I have been more selective about when I choose to drink and certainly if I have something important to the next day and I really need to be super sharp, like whoop has helped me understand that it's not a good option for me to drink more than one drink the night before or something like that because my recovery score is going to be bad. And I've learned to associate my recovery score with not feeling as mentally sharp. So that to me is like, Very, very, very useful information. I see levels in a similar vein, which is like understanding which foods are affecting your glucose and then learning alternatives and other lifestyle habits to sort of mitigate that. And then a a third wearable that I've found really effective for me is actually a, a device that you put right on your chest that measures heart rate variability. It's called Leaf Therapeutics and it's like a little EKG. And it takes you through meditations that show you in real time how your heart rate variability is changing in a way that Whoop and Aura and others are not doing in the real time. So what I've learned from that device is that when I meditate in a particular way with my breath, I can totally change my heart rate variability in real time. So to me, that's like nothing but empowering. And you could say, well, isn't it scary or bothersome when you see the data that your heart rate variability is low when you start meditation? It's like, sure, you could look at any of this as like, isn't this scary or disempowering to see where you're starting? But like, That comes down to more of a growth mindset, like, and that that is more something that I think people have to show up to the wearables with. And also the software that goes along with the wearables can help encourage a growth mindset. And so that's that's really where I I like to see companies go help people understand the room for improvement and how exactly to do it.
0: Well, regarding your magnesium comment, we're going to have to give you our Sleep Support Plus product, and we'll do a test. Like when I see you, we're going to give you that product, and and we'll, we'll do a test.
1: Love to try it because I was doing just like 800 milligrams, like oh, straight magnesium. That's a lot.
0: Poison. That's it's a lot.
1: lot. And I think I may that's have just too... been like shocking.
0: Okay. Yeah, back that back. that's 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 a lot. Ours has ours is a combination of, and this is all rooted like developed from Colleen's like chronic. Pretty bad sleeping but we do 120 milligrams of bispicinate plus 225 of jujube which is kind of like the, the, the magic and then 100 of pharma and it's that magic combination which is like what we say is the nudge it's a gentle nudge that you need but to be continued when we see you we'll give it to you and we'll do a test casey thank you so much
1: thank you so much for having me on jason